0: Hey everybody, and welcome to our very first My Ruby story uh, this week. We're talking to Brad Urani. Brad, you want to say hi?
1: Hi, everyone. How's it going?
0: Well, we're—I'm uh, kind of excited about this. I've been doing this for JavaScript and Angular for a little while, and it's just fun to hear about where people came from and. And what they've got going on now, especially people who have been on the show. Um, I'm trying to remember, It's it's been a while since you've been on the show, hasn't it? On Ruby Rogues? It's,
1: it's been about a year and a half.
0: Yeah, um, episode 237. We talked about Rails and JavaScript and functional programming.
1: Yeah, that was a great episode. I complained a lot about object relational mappers. It's something I do a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in some ways they make that really easy, don't they?
1: Yeah, they do. They're uh they're the, both the joy and the bane of my existence. It's something I deal with a lot.
0: Yep. I was going to say, I mean, in some ways they make life really good, and in other ways it's like, oh, this is so painful to have to figure out how to work around in the ORM, but Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm pretty opinionated when it comes to the subject. Maybe we can get into that when we start talking about Ruby.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think (laughs) I think we'll get there eventually. Um, The first question I usually ask people, though, is how did you get into programming? How did you get started?
1: So I was I was pretty lucky. Um, really, the first thing I ever programmed was a TI-83 calculator. It was really a way for me to uh, you know be distracted and slack off during math class. You know by writing by writing small games. You know in the built-in uh, basic language they had, uh, which was no easy feat uh, to be honest. Um, those those calculators, those you know, black and white graphical calculators, have a pretty primitive version of BASIC mm-hmm. on that doesn't have any functions. So I had to you know get in there with uh, with with go to and label. Um, and there was no really really easy way to share code. So um, programming on those little screens, you know, with limited variables, the, the, the variable they had twenty six variables, A through Z, right, five lists that could only hold ninety nine items, and that was pretty much everything you had as, as far as memory. Um, and so uh, I made some cool games, some, like, graphical solitaire games and things like that when I was, you know, 13, 14. Um, I got a computer when I was, I think, probably 13, uh, Macintosh LC2. And that was real fortunate, too. The timing was real good because uh, my mother was a real estate agent and had to get on the MLS using a modem. So she bought me a modem for Christmas. <laughs> and that was uh, that was right at the very beginning of the consumer Internet in the early 90s. It was It was really – it was really – when there was internet but no web, you know, were, were the main ways of like exploring the internet were through through Gopher and Ways and Archie and things like that that no one's heard of anymore. Um, and there was there was a primitive World Wide Web but no one really used it. So I was really lucky in that I, I was a teenager. An early teen. Um, so, all through my teenage years, um, I watched the web evolve. I was sort of a, a participant in the early, uh, the early consumer internet and watched the web grow up. And um, that was really neat. So, I started writing HTML, doing web pages in the very early days, in the modem days. And um, I kind of lucked out because it's like, you know, I had friends who had modems who got them before me, but they did BBSs and they continued to do BBSs through the early days of the internet where I got on, where my first real exposure was right on the internet. You know, other people had AOL or CopyServe, and I got right in on the internet through, through dial up. Uh, which was just really neat. I, I kind of consider it sort of a historic moment that I lived through. Um, and that was really encouraging for a young man like myself. Um, that was a, It was great because I ended up uh, starting a business actually. When I was 16, I sold yo-yos online. I was one of the very first, um, you know – Online stores uh, – it was so early they didn't take credit cards over the internet back then. So I had to have people mail me checks and I sold a custom-branded <laughs> yo-yo. So I had these – wow. I would buy yo-yos in bulk. They were called Cosmic Yo-yos and then um, – what you do is you'd have custom pogs printed. You remember pogs, those milk mm-hmm, like yep. cap game, and the the pogs fit in the sides of the yo-yos. So I could have the pogs printed with my logo, and then I'd insert those into the sides of the yo-yos. And I sold cosmic yo-yos back when I was sixteen, back in the early days. Wow, of
0: the it was really that's cool. amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. So then I never really, I didn't really, I did HTML on the computer and I did programming on the calculator. I never really put them together and really program the computer until until uh, Netscape version two came out for Macintosh, which was the first version that supported JavaScript. And that was a day that changed my life. I actually have 21 years of JavaScript (laughs) experience. I started, uh, I I didn't get on the very first day because the first version of Netscape came out for PC. I didn't get to use it till the the Mac version came out three or four months later. But I have 21 years of JavaScript. Uh, That's really kind of where I started doing computer programming. But JavaScript was really terrible back then. I mean, it it was half supported. It didn't really work half the time. You couldn't really do much with it. That's kind of how I got started.
0: That's really interesting. And it's interesting, too, to me that it it kind of mirrors a little bit my own uh, journey. I mean, I didn't do a ton of stuff with JavaScript, and I didn't have a Mac, but um, you had, like, one model before me for the TI calculator. I had a TI-85 calculator that I was doing a lot of that stuff on. And then, um, yeah, I, I got into building sites on GeoCities and things like that. I mean, just... Just to goof around. I think Angel Fire was another one that I played with. Um,
1: yeah, but it yeah. broke my heart. It broke my heart when Yahoo took down GeoCities. For those of you who don't know, GeoCities was like a really early um, experiment from the early '90s, where you could um, it was a it was a way to for, it was a it was free hosting for a website. If you had yep. some static HTML pages, you had free hosting on these GeoCities. And Yahoo acquired it years back for hundreds of millions, and then did nothing with it, which is what they did with everything they bought. And then finally, like a few years ago, they finally just like took the old GeoCities offline. It was still there as sort of an archive, as sort of like a you know. Know, a museum exhibit back into the early internet and really upset me when they took it down
0: yeah well if they're not making money at it as a business i can see doing that but yeah it's sad because man the good old days or maybe the not so good old days um but yeah yeah that that was kind of where i got started as well and then um you know i i didn't really take programming seriously again until i was a professional but yeah. it, it's it's interesting yeah 21 years of javascript experience
1: <laughs> it's true. I was doing it wrong for most of that time. I'll admit, I didn't. Really uh, so was, I was everyone else. Anything. But you couldn't really do much with it back then. Back then, yeah. Java was the rage. People forget, but the reason Java was invented was originally for the browser. They had these things called applets, yep. where you would you would program kind of an application in Java, and it would load through a Java plugin onto the web page. Um, And it it never really took off because it was way too slow because modems were so slow back then. Downloading Mm -hmm. a Java applet was way too cumbersome. Um, You know, JavaScript is really a temporary sort of deal that they released in a hurry as a holdover until they got Java ready. And turns out Java never got used for what it was originally designed for, which was these applets. It ended up becoming a server-side technology, which is not what it was built for. Right. But to do anything real, really hardcore on really, you know, complex on a web page, you had to use these Java applets. But the technology was too slow. It never caught on.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's the way of a lot of things <laughs> we find. Yeah. Um, how did you get into Ruby?
1: It was through. It was accidentally. It wasn't intentional. I actually um, I actually only got into Ruby about three years ago. Uh, It was – I had actually been a .NET developer for most of my career um, working for – I worked for an e-commerce company for a while and a few other uh, companies in St. Louis, Missouri where I'm from. And um, I went to work for a social media startup uh, and and that was my first – exposure to open source software. That was a PHP shop, and I only worked for, only worked there for six months, but that's when I converted some for to, from .NET to open source technologies and, and Linux. Um, and then uh, after that, I moved to a startup called Upside, which was a financial uh, startup. Um, we made a, a, what's called a robo-advisor. So if you've heard of like Wealthfront or, or Betterment, uh-huh. which is basically autom- an automated investment service, right? We were licensed uh, investment advisors, and we had sort of an algorithm that could kind of pick optimal portfolios for you. Um, that was my first exposure to Ruby. Um, you know, I, I inherited as as uh, as director of engineering, which is basically CTO, I joined the shop, uh, you know, basically tasked with rebuilding an existing prototype Ruby on Rails app. Uh, so my team and I, we rebuilt that uh, in Ruby on Rails again, um, and that was my first exposure to it. Um, so it was kind of by accident, I had heard about it and never really looked that closely at it, um, and then just kind of got thrust into it and had to dive in feet first. and um, that was interesting what I found. To be honest, I hated it at first. <laughs> it, took me, it took me a long time to, to realize, you know, its merits. Um, it, was, it was sort of, a, it was not a healthy relationship to begin with because I was used to C Sharp and Java and certainly right. type languages. And I, I really missed some things and I sort of misunderstood Ruby and what makes it great. Um, now I love it. But, uh, it, you know, it took me a while to get used to it.
0: That's really funny. So, so what have you done with it since then?
1: So uh, that startup got acquired, and then I uh, I moved to California from my home in St. Louis out to California to work at Procore, which is where I work now. Uh, Procore makes construction management software. Uh, so people who build buildings, skyscrapers, and subways, and opera houses, people who do big construction pro uh, big construction pro- projects, uh, buy our software. Um, and so the the software is it's it's a SaaS uh, suite of of this huge suite of tools for the construction industry. So all this kind of scheduling tools, budgeting tools, document management tools. We've got some a full set of mobile apps for Android, iOS, Windows. We've got um, augmented reality applications. We've got drone integrations. We can actually fly drones around construction sites and pipe it through our app. Um, but the backbone of that is mostly built on on Ruby on Rails. It's it's a Ruby on Rails monolith. Uh, it's one of the oldest and biggest in the world. Uh, at I think. Over a million lines of Ruby. Oh, wow. Uh, the the project is, I think, 12 or 13 years old. It was started on Rails version 0.9. So uh, Procore was a really early adapter in Ruby on Rails. That's long before I worked here, of course. Uh, and so now I'm a staff engineer here, um, and I do a lot of work on performance, on SQL optimization, um, optimizing queries within Ruby on Rails, a lot of uh, data integrations with third-party ERP systems and things like that. Uh, Let's see. I do. Um, I do a lot of work on our database migration tooling and stuff like that. We have we have some interesting problems, which I'll get into in a bit. Um, but uh, so basically, I, I went from like a really small, basically greenfield uh, startup Ruby on Rails project to one of the biggest, oldest, most mature Ruby on Rails projects in the world. I think Shopify's got us beat. They may have like three millions of lines of Ruby and ours, but ours is right up there, some of the biggest. Uh, so I've seen it from both ends: um, both rapid development, early startup stage, and big mature product. Um, and uh, it's really interesting to see the, those how it differs and how something like that scales—not so much in technology terms, but like in people terms. How, um, you know, for instance, we have here at, at Procore. I, I think we've got. We're growing so fast, I can't keep count, but I think we've got 50 back-end developers who are working on this Ruby app. Oh, wow. And, uh, so it's a totally new dynamic, you know, seeing how a team of 50 all working on one Ruby and Rails app is, you know, how that how that works and the best way to accomplish that and uh, keep that running smoothly. It's a
0: It sounds like pers- a zoo to me.
1: <laughs> you know, it's uh, and it works really, really, really well, honestly. You know, before I moved out here, if you had told me we've got a giant monolith with 50 developers all working on the same time, I would have predicted chaos, and that's not the case. We actually succeed phenomenally at it. Um, it's kind of interesting. I think the, the key to that is is really trusting people to make their own decisions. You know, we've got one app with I think 14 squads of four to five developers on it. Um, you know, what we do is we don't overprescribe. Mm-hmm. And, and tell people how to do their architecture we kind of let each team make their own sort of decisions on how they do class design and how they do testing uh and that works surprisingly well when you give people autonomy and you trust them to do their jobs right right and you don't interfere or try to micromanage uh, amazing things happen and um you know we succeed brilliantly at it uh and um and it works really really well you know, the, 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 there's a trade off there. The trade off there is when you've got 14 different teams working on one app and you know, you don't enforce that everyone uses the same style of class design, you know, or the same style of TDD or whatever, you know, different parts of the app can look a little bit different. You know what I mean? Because different mm-hmm. teams have different styles and things like that. And we encourage that. And, um, that's what we want. Uh, you know, the trade off is that, you know, as you surf through the app, but you get into tools, parts of it you've never worked on before. Sometimes it can look a little different, but it turns out that that, uh, that's a big boon to our ability to um to deliver features quickly, you know get value in the hands of our customers um and part of it's the human motivation of that you know giving people the autonomy to make their own design decisions and things like that uh really um I think motivates people to be better workers and feel like they're more invested in their work instead of having you know someone dictate the architecture you know or how to do class design to them
0: yeah uh, and that makes sense it it's still. I don't know. It seems like with a group that large, you would need more heavy, you know, or heavy guidance and heavy collaboration as opposed to more free form. But I guess it also boils down to the type of person you hire, too. So if you hire people that are going to get in, they're not going to cowboy code their way through something, Um, you know, and everybody kind of agrees on at least some of the fundamental tenets. We're going to have tests. We're going to do the right things in the right places for the right reasons. Then, you know, maybe, yeah, you have stylistic changes, differences between groups or things like that. But, you know, ultimately, because everybody's working in the best interest of the company and nobody's out there to try and make their name in the company or do, you know, crazy stuff because they know it affects everybody, then yeah, you know, maybe that could work.
1: It it does. I mean, you know, to make this work, hiring is the most <clears throat> important thing we do. Uh, our acceptance rates for engineering applicants, I think is like 6% or something crazy low, uh, just because we really want the best people. You know, sometimes we've had people, you know, who are these brilliant engineers from Google or Facebook who are coming down from Silicon Valley. And, you know, they have engineering skills that we really, really, really want. But if they're not the right personality, if they have, you know, if, if we sense that they're coming in with the kind of ego that we think would clash with our, our group, which is, you know, a, a pretty, uh, I would say pretty like, you know, humble and just cool mm-hmm. and not braggadocious group, you know, then we don't hire them no badly, how, no matter how badly, you know, we would like some of the engineering skills they could bring to us.
0: That's cool. That's really cool. It seems like if there's one mistake that a lot of companies make, when it comes to their development teams, it's the hiring. It's it's them bringing in people that just don't mesh, or at least um, bringing in people because they want those engineering skills without considering all of the other things, like somebody's actually got to work with this person to manage this person.
1: Exactly. That's right. I mean, culture is really, really important.
0: Yep. Well, you want to keep all the other people happy. so Exactly. So I'm curious because most people I know, when they go out and look for a new job, they they want to stay where they are, right? Or if they're thinking, okay, well I'll I'll have a new adventure. uh, Usually they're looking to like move out to the Wild West kind of area. (laughs) I guess where I live because I live uh, near Salt Lake City. You know, or they want to move to Denver or something. You know, occasionally you get people moving out to California, but it sounds like you made the leap. Uh, What was it that made you go? Oh. Yeah, let's move from St. Louis to California
1: yeah it was opportunity um oh, I mean <laughs> well, let me first of all remark so first of all I live in I live in Santa Barbara, which is uh, it's about two hours north of l a so it's actually Southern California uh-huh. um, well, I mean for one thing, I'll just get this out of the way it's one of the most beautiful places on earth I mean, just the I we're right on the ocean wedge between the ocean and the mountains, like oh my gosh, the sun shines three hundred fifty days a year, just like the flowers bloom in March, and the whole place is just absolutely gorgeous I mean Um, So I I love the lifestyle out here, but that's – I mean the main reason I moved is because of the opportunity out here in California – there's just no place in the world like this. So, uh, just to give you a little background, uh, like I said, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and um, I was very invested in the startup scene when I was there. The last, most of my career has actually been working at small startups in St. Louis. Um, and those were all really, really great experiences. And there are some phenomenally talented people out there, you know, bold, visionary entrepreneurs trying to do amazing things. And, and there is sort of a, a decent scene. There are some venture capital groups in town that fund some startups. But when you come out here to California, it's just a different level. Uh, there's just in, in terms of, of, there's no place on earth where you know you can have a bright idea and have so many forward-looking people, entrepreneurs, and engineers and investors who are willing to invest their time and their money in order to see that that through. Um, you know, every city tries it, and every city to some degree hopefully has startup incubators and accelerators and things like that. But out here in California, everything is just on a, a level that no one else can compete with. Um, you know. If you can raise a million dollars for a startup in a place like St. Louis, you can raise ten million in a place like California. And, and you know, it, it's not just about money, but that money—you know—it—it—it—it it, it, it allows you to outcompete the people from the other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Given a company in St. Louis with one million and a company in California with ten million. You know guess who 's going to win you know the company with ten million can hire more people you know they can move faster and that 's exactly what right. happened my the, the the financial tech startup I was at in St Louis got out competed by a california rival in in our case it was betterment who kind of ate our lunch and you know i was um, at the time uh, we we actually did um we actually did sell our uh, upside our startup. We got acquired, um, not in a big way. None of us got rich off of it, but at the time I was looking for jobs and I just felt limited in in St. Louis. You know, I had, at the time I I had done, I was doing a lot of conference speaking. I'm still doing that now, but, um, and, you know had worked really hard to learn Ruby on Rails and to get past my early days as a .net developer and learn these open source technologies and get better at Linux and really felt I had to make a move to really optimize this opportunity. I had a I had a 1-year-old daughter. She's 3 now and I figured by the time she gets into school it will be harder, you know, the older she gets the harder it is will be to make mm-hmm. this move, so I thought yep. it was the time now. And I had a lot of doubters, you know, a lot of people who didn't want to see me go, to leave St. Louis, who thought I was making a mistake, but the fact is the world's best companies are out here on the west coast. They just really are. There's no way around that. You know, and and the opportunities for a, a good developer um, out here are just are just greater to get in, so involved with something bigger, you know, that has a more ambitious mission that's trying to change the world. And, and people have a more ambitious outlook out here, I think. So like take a look at where I work now, Procore, you know, like I said we make construction management software. Well, To offer the to compete in this market, you really need the full suite, which is like a whole bunch of tools, all these scheduling tools and budgeting tools and bidding tools and all these things. It's literally consists of thousands of features. Software like that takes ten plus years to build just to get up to the point where you have feature parity with the people who you're trying to compete against. Right. You know that is beyond the scope of what most of of risk of most people in in outside of California or in smaller midwestern cities are going to try to invest in. You know that's too ambitious. Ambitious a goal, but out here, you know, people are willing to put in big money and, you know, and and do it, you know, for a long enough period of time to see that through, to see it through to maturity, you know. Whereas I think the same idea would have failed because it, you know, because most people don't have that kind of long outlook, you know. Back where I'm from, out here, people understand, you know, just the massive investment, um, and, and they're willing to invest bigger into some of these. Capital intensive enterprises, you know, out here in Santa Barbara. I'm not, I'm in Santa Barbara, which is, it's not even LA or San Francisco, right? It's, it's kind of up near, it's northern part of SoCal. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an incredible tech scene here. There's some great companies, and then the University of California Santa Barbara is here, which is an incredible comp site program, which makes this little town kind of a tech mecca, a little tech paradise. But, um, you know, back in St. Louis I would go to these startup events and you saw people with with neat novel products, right? But they weren't really technologically intense. You go to like startup meetups here in Santa Barbara and you have people trying to get into really advanced artificial intelligence, you know, people who are trying to raise 50 million dollars so they can invent a new type of battery, you know, or 100 million dollars so they can create a network of electronic refueling stations, you know, across the state or something like that. And there's just a bigger scope, bigger vision, and and more money being thrown at these problems that make it kind of unique, you know. Mm-hmm. I, it kind of pains me to say that because, <laughs> you know, when I left St. Louis, uh, you know, uh, I left a group of, of really of people who are really trying to make St. Louis a, a technology hub. And it, it breaks my heart a little to say this, but the the conditions that they have out here are just not replicatable in a place like that, you know. Which is too bad because a come a city like St. Louis could really use an infusion of tech jobs and and um, you know, tech money and things like that. Um, but I don't know. It's just really hard to replicate the California experience elsewhere. And and if you're a software engineer, you know, you have higher job mobility out here. There are more great companies to work for. You know, um, and you just um. If you're if you really want to if you want to work for some really amazing companies and if you know and, and let's just say it you know if you hopefully want to make some money of, of your own you know through joining the right company and earning some stock options you know this is the place to be um, you just have more choice as a developer and you'll you can advance your career further
0: that's really interesting I'm also curious um, because of all of the differences that you're talking about as far as just the circumstances that are available to people in California um, how does that change the community and the people that you run into at things like meetups and conferences? Is that all the same and it's just the environment's a little bit different or is the overall flavor kind of different?
1: You know, uh, I mean, I have found really cool and awesome people in, you know, sort of software development and, and software startup communities everywhere I've, I've gone both, both here and there. I think it's more, I think the main, so I, no, I don't, I don't think the attitudes of people are much different. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that the attitudes people have towards software and software development are all that different. Um,
0: but do you get people who are more ambitious or more startup focused or things like that out there? Or
1: I think people are just, I think people realize that the resources are here both in engineering talent and fundraising capability, to take on bigger, more ambitious things, Mm -hmm. you know, things that have a longer outlook that need more money, more capital to get started or get to market. You know, people realize that there's a bigger support network um, so that they can have bigger ideas to do harder things.
0: That makes sense. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because... um, you know, I'm just going to tie this back to where I'm at. Um, You know, Salt Lake City has been growing quite a bit in that particular area, you know, and I don't know if it's, a tech hub that's comparable to, you know, San Francisco or New York or, you know, some of those areas. But we're seeing more investment come in here and more tech jobs show up and, you know, bigger companies build offices out here and stuff. And so it's, it's interesting. And I don't know what that mix is. Like if there's something about us here that makes it an interesting place to kind of invest as maybe a a third or fourth option after some of the bigger markets on the West or East coast. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see just how, yeah, how that's changed the outlook for people on things. And then the community, at large, you know, there are a lot more people who are looking now to start a company and get it funded and get things moving and, you know, and finding those resources. And, you know, how many of these investment firms are looking in places like here or maybe Austin? Um, But then in other cities, you know, they're fighting tooth and nail to try and grow the tech community there and, and, and have these kind of options. And for whatever reason, it's just not going as quickly as they would like.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's 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 a higher level of risk-taking out here that I think you need in order to really you know, form really ambitious companies. People throw, I mean, there, there's a downside, which is some people, times people throw huge amounts of money at companies that don't seem to really have a plan. Right. I've seen a lot of money wasted out here chasing ridiculous companies and things like that, you know, but mixed in with that is people who are right, you know, willing to write a check with an extra zero on it, you know, because they're just more billionaires out here. And hence there are more mm-hmm. venture capital firms with more money and they're able to invest in bigger things. Um, so and and that that trickles down, you know, if you if you're an engineer, a software developer and you're looking through for the biggest opportunities, um, you know, whether your interest is is, you know, becoming the best engineer you can be or, you know, or, you know, making a little money yourself, um, you just have more opportunities here because there's the concentration is greater, you know. Yep. So, 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 it's neat. It's it's really neat to see that. Um, you know, I didn't know if I would like it out here. Uh, I'm really glad I made the switch. You know, not only is it sunny and beautiful out every day, but uh, you know, it's just uh, I feel like um, you know, I intend. I love my job, so I intend on staying here a long time. But if someday I did move on, you know, I feel like I'd have more options, more opportunities, and things like that. Um, so I, I think it was a it was a good move.
0: So I'm curious, um, and this is usually the next question I ask. I usually don't go into why would you move to California with people. Um, But the next question I usually ask is, you know, have you written any libraries or projects or, you know, have you posted blog posts or videos or done other things that people would notice or have noticed you for in the community?
1: Well, most people know me from my conference talks. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a very very prolific conference speaker. Uh, I think I've done 20 or so in the last year. I'm, I'm sort of unofficially wow. our, our um, I'm sort of on unof- the last two years, not, not 20 in one year. Probably, I've probably done 20 in the last two years. Um, but I'm sort of unofficially our developer evangelist. Um, so I gave a talk at uh, RailsConf uh, last year and RubyConf uh, you know, back in San Antonio and I'm speaking at RailsConf again next month. Uh, I was in uh, Poly, PolyConf in Poland. I did uh, RubyConf Taiwan. Um, so that's mostly how people know me. I, I, I really enjoy, uh, conference speaking and a lot of people, uh, a lot of people tell me they, they really enjoy my talk. So I've kind of gotten a following of, of people who, uh, who are really interested to see which talks I'm going to give next. And that's kind of been fun. Cool.
0: So what are you working on now?
1: Good question. So now, uh, like I said before I do a lot of um I work on a team that does a lot of data integrations um, moving big amounts of data back and forth between our systems and third party systems I've also dived in uh, started doing react for the first time um, so uh, I'm taking some pages that were ri- written in Ruby on Rails and just classic you know using erb uh, and I'm converting them over to react apps to um, I wouldn't call them spas you know because they're, they're mm-hmm. not quite that Size, right. but some, some pretty some pretty ambitious, uh, you know, um, really dynamic front end web pages. Uh, that's that's been really interesting. Um, diving into that for the first time.
0: Now you say interesting, but sometimes interesting is frustrating, and sometimes interesting is really fun.
1: Yeah. So I'll tell you about uh, I'll tell you about what I think about React, and uh, it might be a slightly different story than you're used to hearing, folks. Uh, on the on the technological end, I love it. Um, you know, I, I got into functional programming a couple of years ago, and I like that it follows those ideals. You know, you, the React is built on immutable data structures, or mm-hmm. you're supposed to use immutable data structures with it. Um, it's got this sort of top-down state of flow. So say you make an AJAX request, right? You get back the response. You sort of pass data down these levels of components uh, in a way that simplifies state management, Um you know, I like the Redux pattern and stuff like that. So it, it really is, having previously done a project in Ember.js and, and done, you know, a lot of jQuery and stuff over the years, it really is an improvement in that, in that way. Um, and, and everyone says that, you know, that's pretty common knowledge. That's why it's caught on so well. There is sort of a downside to React I found uh, that I think a lot of people don't talk about very much, which is the React piece is really kind of only one piece of a framework you need, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of the view layer. But if you want to build something ambitious with it, like a pretty sizable application with a lot of capabilities, you have to add a lot to it, you know? For a while, you, you, want, a, you want a library that follows the flux pattern. For a while, everyone is using a different one. Now people have sort of settled on Redux, but even that's not quite the whole stack, you know? You need to yeah. set up build tools, you need to choose usually some kind of uh, like functional library for list operations, like an underscore or a, or a immutable JS, or um, usually you pair that with some kind of functional a library to do currying and stuff like a ramda.js or something like that um, you know you need to figure out some kind of solution for a store some kind of in-memory database or something like that I mean you don't need all this stuff you don't have to but if you're going to do something really ambitious there are a lot of sort of pieces you need to add on and not, not all the community is quite on the same page you know, there and the things change real quickly. And the downside of that is you end up kind of rolling your own stack. And once you roll your own stack, you don't have like a single definitive source of documentation. You can't just pick up a book that teaches you how to create in a, you know, create an app in the framework you've created. Or if you hire someone new, you can't say, oh, just read this book, you know, because you've half the stack is sort of custom built. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there's a real downside to that. So while I love the technology, um, it can be a real liability, you know, once you start, Going overboard, you you can be tempted to real fast go Mm -hmm. overboard and build up this huge framework, and then realize that you've created. A, a pretty big burden in trying to onboard new developers, you know, or, or just keep the thing up to date as all the dependencies change and as the community moves on to newer, shinier shiny libraries and things like that, um, you know, which could kind of leave a trail of like older apps in its place, you know, like um, you could start on Re- – if you started on React one year ago when you built one page in React and then you built – then you added something and built the second page in React then you added the third library and did the third page in React, you know, you've kind of got – apps across your larger application, all of which are using like slightly different mixed and match pieces of the libraries, right? Which can, which can, which is a, you know, kind of a downside to those technologies that isn't talked about much. Whereas on the other hand, if you pick something like Ember JS, all the tools you need are right there out of the box, you know, you just go and it's got kind of everything rolled up. Um, So I don't know. It's interesting. Like I said, I like the tech, um, but uh, keeping up with it can be a real chore.
0: Yeah, I've, I've kind of gone the other way with Angular. And yeah. uh, there is some infrastructure you can add to Angular, but it's a much more fully featured framework as opposed to what React gives you um, yeah. just plain vanilla React. And like you said, you pull in the other pieces. I have done a little bit of React Native, though, and it's interesting yeah. to see how a lot of that comes together. But again, you know, you wind up composing a lot of other pieces on top of it in order to get what you need. Yeah,
1: yeah that's exactly right.
0: So uh, the last question uh, that I usually ask people for is picks. But before we do the picks, um, I'm curious if people want to see where you're going to be speaking or follow you on Twitter or something like that, Uh, GitHub, things like that. What do they do?
1: Yeah, Twitter's the best. Uh, My my Twitter handle is just my name, Brad Urani, B-R-A-D-U-R-A-N-I. Uh, I've got plenty of videos. I've got a blog online called Fractal Banana, which has a lot of my conference talks on it, videos of my conference talks from previous Ruby and Rails confs and other things like that. Um, and I, I do a lot of talks about databases. I love relational databases. Um, I love explaining to people – I have some talks where I actually explain how they work, how the query planner sort of creates the query for you, what goes on when you run a SQL query. I've got some talks about active Record and how to use it properly and, and Active Record in comparison to Ecto. From from uh, from from Elixir Phoenix, um, and if you're interested in that stuff, check out what I have. I did a great talk at RubyConf about immutable data structures. Um, so if you so like, we know that like in the React world and the functional world, people use these immutable lists and immutable data structures. Uh, but I did a talk on on actually how they work you know, how they're actually, you know, inf- mutability is actually enforced um, and why you should use these and what the benefit is in terms of performance and features and things like that. Um, so check out Fractal Banana, which is my blog, and you can see the, re- find the recordings of all those.
0: All right. Well, um, let's go ahead and do some picks.
1: Cool. Uh, am I allowed to shamelessly plug the company I work for first? Do <laughs> it's it. One of my picks. Do it. <laughs> Uh, So I I work at Procore. I think we're one of the best companies on earth, to use a cliché term. We're a unicorn hypergrowth rocket ship. Uh, We're hiring like mad. We're in beautiful, sunny California, Santa Barbara, which is not LA, not San Francisco. We need all kinds of Rails devs, React devs, artificial intelligence devs, HoloLens devs. We're hiring pretty much everything and everything, DevOps, SQL, you name it. Um, Come work with us. It's great. Uh, Let's see. The second pick I have here, I read a book recently that I really like. Uh, it's called *The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage*. Uh, it's a graphic novel. It's actually the first graphic novel I've ever ever bought and read. Uh, it's by a woman named Sydney Padua, uh, and it's a it's a graphic novel telling the story of Countess Ada Lovelace uh, and Charles Babbage, who were the, sort of the she's sort of the original first you know computer programmer ever, and he's sort of the Inventor of the concept of the computers, you know, in, in the days before electricity, when, when, um, you know, when there were no computers, he sort of invented a mechanical computer. And it's this great graphic novel that um, it sort of starts with their story and then kind of goes off into imaginary land. Like, what if they had actually built this thing? If you're looking for a fun book to get people interested in computers, whether you're an adult or you're trying to buy one for a young adult, maybe, uh, it's really a neat book uh, that I really enjoyed. Um, I did also want to give a shout out about something I was involved with when I live back in St. Louis, which is a nonprofit. Uh, it's called launch code. Launch code is an apprenticeship program. Uh, they don't call it that, but that's really kind of what it is. Um, it's sort of an alternative to like, a, if you know, people who are getting into, um, computer p- programming who maybe have non-traditional backgrounds, you know, it's sort of a, an alternative to the, going the boot camp route. Um, this is a nonprofit that puts, Aspiring programmers into paired pos- paired programming positions at existing companies, uh, and they've just had tremendous success. Um, they've placed. I think over 600 people in the last two years, mostly in St. Louis, but they've expanded into Miami, Kansas City. Um, and, and the reason I shout it out is I think, first of all, if you know people who are trying to get into programming, but maybe you're looking for an alternative to the boot camps, which may be a good option for some, but um, you know also very expensive, somewhat risky because of all the money you spend and you can go into debt with those things. You know, um, Check out Launch Code, um, And I think it's a neat model that's not really talked about enough. People love to talk about, programmers love to talk about tech education and how to get people into the fold and help people start careers and this is a really 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 neat kind of innovative model this sort of apprenticeship thing of putting people you know aspiring programmers in paired positions um you know that I that I thinks a pretty neat take on it mm-hmm. that not many people are doing. It's called launch code. Sounds good. Yeah.
0: All right, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks here myself. Um, The first one is, um, I'm probably going to start releasing these around the beginning of May. Um, So you're probably going to start hearing from me about, um, and and this comes off of your pick around uh, the company you work for, and um, I'm putting together a product that will help people find better jobs. So in particular, it's I'm in a job um and i want to find something better um and it walks you through figuring out what that something better looks like and then uh goes into how you find the companies that look like what you want and then how you meet the people who work for the companies that you want to work for and then um all the way down to getting noticed and having your resume all together and uh you know ways to get their attention um Anyway, it's it's gonna be really great. It's gonna have some videos uh that show you how to find those companies and then um you know um it's gonna have the mock conversation so it's here's how you start a conversation with somebody to get to know them. Here's how you um here's some of the things that you can ask people to help you find a job without directly saying, Hey, can you help me find a job? Because um I found that if you just go to somebody and say, Hey, I'm looking for a job they don't always know what to how to help you but if you know what you're looking for and generally what where you want to wind up then a lot of times they can be much more helpful you know and so it's it's things like you know hey do you know any companies that do this or um you know if you if you know the company you want to get into maybe who do you know that works for this company or stuff like that so anyway um It's going to be pretty awesome. I'm I'm putting a lot of stuff in there for remote as well because I keep getting asked about that. Um, And I'm going to also have just a a nod to freelancing. Freelancing is kind of its own topic, but it's something to consider if you can't find a job any other way. So um, anyway, it's going to be fun. Uh, Keep an eye out for that. Um, I'm also updating the top 10 episodes um, I'm going to pull in the top 10 episodes from Ruby Rogues from last year. So if you're curious what the most popular episodes of Ruby Rogues were, then check those out. Uh, just go to rubyrogues.com. Um, in fact, you should be able to go to rubyrogues.com slash top 10. And uh, yeah, you can get on the mailing list and it'll just email one out to you every day. Um, and then finally, um, this is going to come out before Ruby remote conf. So if you're interested in Ruby remote conf, um, call for proposals is probably closed by the time this comes out. It's open now. Um, but yeah, so if you want to speak at a remote conference for Ruby developers, or you want to attend a conference for Ruby developers, we're going to have a lineup of 16 terrific speakers and, uh, there's a Slack room. We usually do, uh, live video round table discussion with attendees and speakers. And that's always fun just to see what people are up to and what people need help with and things like that. So I'm pulling all of that together. And it's just a terrific way to connect with people, um, which is another way that I encourage people to go find jobs or to stay current. So if you're looking for any of that, then uh, go check that out as well. Um, Brad, anything else you want to add before we wrap this up?
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, Chuck. This is a great experience. And uh, thank you for doing the show.
0: Thank you. And thanks for sharing your story. Um, I think, I think that's one of the things that's important in the community is a lot of times we focus on, oh, what's the technology or, you know, what have you learned? And, you know, we miss out on the stories and we miss out on the experience that's, oh, well, you know, I, I was in this position and I saw this opportunity and I went for it kind of like your move to California and just to encourage people to look at where they are and where they want to be and decide to make that leap or decide that it's possible. So,
1: yeah I, th- I think that's really awesome that you're that you're involved in that and working on that. Um, computer programmers have one of the highest degrees of job mobility of any profession if, if you're a good engineer you can uh, you can literally work for almost any company on earth because almost every company on earth is hiring software mm-hmm. developers so there there's no other career that offers you the degrees of freedom and movement and your choice of type of jobs and places to work at and what to work on um, but I, I I definitely can uh, understand what where you are because I think that a lot of software engineers have a hard time. Th- capitalizing on that maximizing yep. their opportunities and knowing what to do how to really you know get the most out of that um, out of that you know sort of freedom of mobility so uh, I'm glad you're working on that that's really neat I can't wait to see what you come up with
0: well thanks um, we're gonna go ahead and wrap this show up uh, thank you for coming and sharing your story and my pleasure we'll we'll, we'll be back next week with uh, another former guest of the Ruby Rogues podcast